0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Man, my heart breaks for that little girl every single time I see it. It's like, oh, you just got that gift, and there it's in the fireplace. People have never heard of covers? What is happening? You know, and so uh, this past week I came across this story um, where a man had, uh, he was under house arrest, and he was wearing the GPS bracelet, and uh, he uploaded a video to Facebook, and it shows him um, giving step-by-step instructions how with a butter knife and a Phillips head screwdriver, you can remove your GPS tracking bracelet, and and so he was sharing it on Facebook, because that's what you do, and um, he was wanting others to be able to benefit from his discovery, and then then what's awesome is that subsequent posts show him in Boise, Idaho, Oregon, um, California, walking through a marijuana field, um, because he was under house arrest in Springfield, Missouri, okay? So you can imagine how that played out, and I I can understand that with a video and a title like Raising Losers, that maybe what pops in your mind is that kind of moment, and yes, none of us want to raise that, okay, and and I recognize that, and if that's you, we love you, because you may be watching us on Facebook, right, there's hope no matter where you are, and we really do believe that, but this series is primarily about how to shape the path, because Jason introduced last week this principle that's important, um, that you are, as an influencer, you cannot, you don't have a promise that can be fulfilled when it comes to parenting, when it comes to influencing those around you, because this series may sound like it's just for parents, but it's not. It's for anyone who has influence on those around them. And so it may be for you employees, it may be a group of friends, it may be people you're mentoring, But the reality is we all are influencers, and we're all helping to shape. And this series isn't so much about a promise that you can fulfill. It's about a principle. It's about a path that you can shape for others to follow. And when we talk about raising losers, it's about fostering resiliency. It's about developing and cultivating that grit and that perseverance. Because resiliency and perseverance is a very distinctive um, Christian uh, characteristic. It's what marked the early church. It's throughout the New Testament, this constant reminder of perseverance and persistence and resilience. It's what stands out in all the primary Christian kind of heroes, male and female. They had an ability to stand firm even when everything else was falling apart around them. And this series... Last week where Jason was just introducing the idea that you have a part to play, that you have an influence to give, that you can have some impact, even if you're not going to determine the outcome of their lives, you can help to set the course early on of their life. So if they veer off a path, it's a path that you've paved and you've made straight and you've made clear for them. And what I want to do today is pick up a little bit on that and And you're going to want to hear, I get this idea of raising losers and you're going to say, okay, so I got the raising part. Now tell me how to raise losers, how to raise kids that can handle. And and I want to encourage you to come back tonight. We're doing a free parenting seminar here again. Even if you're not a parent, it's going to be practical. Um, I'm really excited about what I'm going to press in tonight. Tonight will be the first time I talk about some practical things that you do with those people. Because believe it or not, the environment matters. And all the studies that have been done around raising resiliency, fostering resiliency and grit, um, both in ancient literature and in modern academic research, there are some things that come up again and again before it ever goes down to the child. And today I wanna talk about the most critical, important factor in raising resilient children and fostering and developing and building resilient teams at work or uh, mentoring, and shepherding, and coaching resilient resilient sports teams, like before we get to any of those kids, or those employees, or those people, I want to start with the most important piece of the puzzle, and to do that, I want to take you to an obscure passage, one that you've probably never, um, maybe even read before, it's about 2,800 years ago, and it's an obscure moment in the life of one of Israel's most famous prophets, and I'm going to set a little bit of the backdrop for you because this is obscure. This is very much rooted in an ancient culture that's so foreign from our own that some of the details and the nuances can be lost. The, one of the more famous prophets in the Old Testament or in the Jewish faith was a guy named Elijah. Okay? Uh, Elijah was one of those individuals who lived during a period of time where a lot of miracles occurred. Most people, when they look at the Bible, they're like, the Bible's full of miracles. Well, when actually, when you kind of start to track it down and compress it chronologically, what you find when you read the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is there are punctuated periods of miracles. There's a lot of normal. There's a lot of ordinary. And then there's these few moments of extraordinary. There's a few moments of incredible. Elijah is one of those moments. Moses is another one of those moments, but a lot of times it was just kind of normal, everyday life kind of things. Elijah is responsible. He sees and takes part in some incredible things that happens. Elijah is famous, and, and in some people's eyes, he's infamous. There are a few characters in the passage today that just helps understanding who they are as a backdrop. In verse 1 of uh, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, uh, is where we're going to be today. And we're going to look at just 10 verses, and they're already preloaded. And 1 Kings, just for you to know, is is essentially an, an Old Testament history book. The Israel the of this time period was uh, a, primarily a kingdom ruled by kings. Uh, they had a different government structure than what we have today. We have a democracy. A democracy and... What they had was called a theocracy. And a theocracy is a really different type of government structure. It's the idea that God is the ruler and that a king represents it. Um, actually, you see a little bit of this. It's not completely present today. But um, in England today, they have royalty. And those royalty, those, that royal family, their authority, their power is rooted in that they believe God himself put them in the throne. And so in the ancient kind of world, this was a way that you had some street cred, because what's to stop you from being the king and queen versus that person? And so when you're able to walk into the room and say, well, God picked me, that gives you a little bit more of an authority to get your way. And this is what's happening. These people are part of what's called a theocratic government structure, and God himself, they believe, has picked them to be the king and the queen. And then there is a guy named Elijah who is a prophet, who is the preacher, the spokesperson of God in Israel. And in verse 1, we see these characters introduced. You have Ahab, right? And you have Jezebel, their husband and wife, their king and queen. Jezebel, you may not have grown up in church, may not know a lot about church, but you've probably never met another woman named Jezebel. And the reason you've never met a woman named Jezebel before is because of this Jezebel. Okay? It's it's true. Like this one woman and how she lived and the way that she acted and the, the way that she would murderously get what she would want. If you had something that she wanted and you wouldn't give it, she would kill you. She was vicious, she was manipulative. In a world of kingdoms that surrounded Israel, she had sway and influence on multiple kings or queens. She's one of those type of figures in human history. Cleopatra is another one of those figures in human history. But Jezebel is, is so dominant and evil that to, even today people avoid the name because of the implications. In the same way that people don't name their kid Adolf anymore either. And that mustache that was so popular went away too because there's just certain things that get associated that after one person embodies it, they completely get away from it. And so Ahab and Jezebel are not big fans of Elijah or Elijah's God. In fact, Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh, the Jewish God. Jezebel's name essentially means my God is Baal, which is the foreign God that she worshiped. He's the God of fertility. He's the God of who is standing in opposition at the time. He's the one that a lot of the Israelite people are worshiping. And that's the backdrop. And all you need to know is that caused a lot of clash and conflict. This goes deeper than Red Sox and Yankees. Okay, like We don't have a box for what's happening in the backdrop of these people's lives. But what we do know is that Jezebel and Ahab hate Elijah. And Elijah has just made them look really, really bad. He performs a series of miracles while taunting these um, prophets of Baal that can't do anything. And it's so clear that God shows up that what ends up happening is 400 of those prophets end up being killed in, the, in this kind of rebellious act where people start to purge the land of these uh, kind of foreign gods. On top of that, Israel's had a drought for at least three years and Elijah starts to pray and the drought changes. So you can kind of imagine, this guy's making you look bad over and over and over again. So what happens? It says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, by this time tomorrow, if I do not make your life like one of them. Now when she invokes may the gods, she's... Again, that's very strange. Most of us don't walk into places, I want to rent this car, and may the gods ever so be inclined towards me. If I miss a payment, may I be like the, you know. Like, we don't use that language today. But this is a legal contract. This is a binding hit she puts on his life. This is an equivalent of what you and I might sign in a bank. That's the level of authority Jezebel has. So, Elijah recognizes that this crazy woman who was killed before has just put a legal hit out on him. And she staked her own life to it. And so what does Elijah do? What does he, he says that Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. He's about to cross out of the national boundary lines. So he's like, look, they're chasing me. They're not chasing you. You're safe. You stay. This would have been like a protege for Elijah um, that he would have been training. So he leaves him there, and it says that Elijah went on a day's journey into the wilderness. And the wilderness is desert. In, in Israel today, there are still these desert regions, and they're called the wilderness. And the, the tallest thing that grows in the wilderness is something called a broom bush, which is why you see when he comes to a broom bush, he sat down underneath it because a broom bush is about five to eight feet tall. It's the tallest shrub in the desert, the only place you get shade. And so he's been walking for a solid day, fearing for his life, and he sits down underneath it, and he's finally under, kind of underneath the shade of a tree and away from the sun's glaring heat. And what does he do? He says, God, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He gets to this place, and he's devastated, and he says, I don't want to live anymore. I'm done. Now, one of the things I love about this, to be quite honest, if I was making up the Bible, which I recognize some people believe, I would not have put that sentence in there. I would not have taken a guy who had just performed incredible miracles. In fact, in chapter 17, he's indirectly and directly responsible for three different miracles that happen In the chapter right before this, I would have not made my hero who has seen incredible things happen, who's been a part of incredible things happening, I would not have him nine verses later sitting down under a tree wishing he was dead. Like, that is not the best marketing ploy if you're trying to get people to sign up for your religion. But I love that the Bible is real. It speaks candidly to where this guy is in life. And this is what's fascinating. For the people who go through the 112, I'm actually about to do an illustration you've seen before. But in the 112, today's 112 session, for example, I, I teach people how to read the Bible. And I love, love the Bible. And, and one of the things when you're engaging with it is you recognize part of it's rooted in history. It's a historical story playing out, but there's also God's story mixed into it. And, and when you engage it, you're meant to, like, interact with it. And so there is a, a question that screams out at me, what is going on when I get to this part? What makes a man who's literally been on a mountain in chapter 7, on top of a mountain, doing miracles, find himself in a desert a chapter later wishing he was dead? And it gets even more interesting is notice what happens in verse 5. He says, Then he laid down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. Like, he ate and he drank and then he laid down again and then the angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. When you start to ask this question, what's going on? Why does when God shows up, like, he prays, God, I want to die, and what happens? An angel shows up and instructs him to do some things that are really not that profound. And if you're reading the Bible and you're understanding that this thing is meant to be engaged with, that you read it literally in the passages that are meant to be literally and figuratively in the passages that are meant to be read figuratively, that what happens here is that these questions bouncing around your head actually start to point you to something that is truly profound, something that is happening underneath the surface in this interchange between God and Elijah, who's running for his life, is that Elijah is in a place that while it's 2,800 years separated from us, it is by his experience, it's what some of us are going through right now. What we see playing out in Elijah is a human experience that all of us can relate to. And look, you may be here today, you may be listening online today, and you don't even believe this stuff. But I'm about to tell you, what we're about to walk through relates to all of us, even if you don't believe the rest of it. Because what we're pressing into is something wired into how God has formed us. So in the 112, like I referenced, one of the things that I teach people who go through the 112, um, we talk about how to live out the full spiritual life, the hope that you experience here on a Sunday morning. We want you to have in every single hour of your week, whether you've been a Christian for a day or whether you've been a Christian for 100 years, I believe there's something in it for you. It's that profound. It's that helpful. And one of the things that I talk through is um, this idea that when you become a Christian, there are things inside of you that are transformed, but then there are parts of you that are that stay norm, that they don't. And one of the components that, um, that's an important part of who you are as a person is your emotional health. Okay? And because we live in a broken world, one of the things that's helpful, let's, let's imagine you're a bucket, okay? And your emotional health is, is what gets carried in a bucket. Now because we live in a broken world, we have holes in our bucket. And so what happens is those, that emotional energy is leaking out, right? That mental energy is pouring out of us. And because I care about you and your visual experience, I have a blue marker, right? And this is what life looks like for most of us. We experience, we, have this, we kind of carry this emotional bucket. We go through the course of everyday life, and these holes in the side or where things are flowing out of us. And then there are this kind of outflow down here. There's an inflow up here. And so what we see in this passage is God interacting with Elijah at this level. It's why God tells him to do certain things. It's why God meets him where he is in this place. You see, um, we all have holes in our lives. Not those kind of holes, but holes emotionally. And in those kind of holes in our lives, we that hole may have a name for you. It could be your kids. It could be your job. It could be a health thing that you're going through. Now, it, these holes aren't always bad. On Sunday afternoon, when I'm done speaking, I am a zombie. Because one of my holes is what I'm doing on this stage right now. I am pouring out emotional energy while I'm up, up here. And so there's good and there's bad. Sometimes we have a life crisis hit, and right, and we're going through some trouble, and that trouble is gushing out of us. Some of us, we grew up in a home, and there are some things that were said and done to us that blew a hole in the side of us, and we are, we, we carry the scars from when we were younger. And they're still just leaking out of us. And what happens is that Elijah finds himself in a place where because of circumstances around him, because of situations that he's in, he has a lot of these things, and they're rushing, gushing out. And he's exhausted. And what Elijah illustrates in this, this place is a really profound insight to how you and I can be and live coming from a fuller, better place. Now, here's the key that's really important. We're all different. And so these holes, so what may be a hole for me, okay? I'm an introvert. So I'm going to call this hole people. Okay? I'm sorry. But it's true. Humans are a hole for me. I wish it wasn't so, but it is, right? Now, some of you, right, you're introverts, and you're like that. When you go to a party, you can literally feel yourself being like the life force sucked out of you. You find that wall, and you strategically hold that wall up the entire night because you're just trying to hold it together. Now, some of you are extroverts, and when you go to a party, it's like it flows in, you don't want to leave. You feel more energized when you walk out of the door than when you walked in. Why? Because you're an extrovert. And so it actually inflows energy for you. This is why we're different. This is why what may be inflows for you may be drains for me. And where I may have said, um, like, for me, I love my job. Quite honestly, my job's not a drain. For some of you, your job may be this size. And it drains life out of you some of you may be going through a struggle right now right and and this is what you feel other people may be walking through the exact same struggle and that's what they feel the goal is not to compare yourself to others you are unique God made you you have your own wiring and what's critical is that you understand what what flows in what recharges and what drains because if you understand this dynamic you're in a better place to lead yourself, but this is where it gets interesting. With Elijah, the reason God steps in, what does God tell him to do? God says, hey, Elijah, eat something. Elijah, drink something. Elijah, take a nap. How many of you know, like my wife, for example, um, so on Sunday afternoons, if I can give her a nap, I get like husband of the year award, okay? If someone tried to give me a nap on Sunday morning, I wake up like a zombie. I'm angry at the world. There is nothing refueling about a nap for me. But where my wife can go and take a nap for an hour in a dark room with a fan full blast and drown out all the noise of Ella and I running around the house. If I get an hour of reading on Sunday afternoon, I feel emotionally recharged just as much as she does from a nap. And it matters. You need to know how you recharge. You need to know what refuels you. It may be small things, it may be big things, but you need to know what those things are. And you need to be aware of these things because what happens is we get into this place. Okay, I'm just gonna use kind of an iPhone illustration. This is where Elijah is. Elijah is in a very specific place, a very dangerous place that I want to press into for a second. Um, So if you have an iPhone or an iOS device, or I think even some Android devices will do the same, they have a battery saving feature. When you get to 20%, it'll be like 20% low power saving mode, right? And you have to hit the button. Because if you don't, your phone's going to die really quickly. So you hit the button, it's kind of like... You see it shift over to yellow and it's going to give you a little bit longer. But what happens when you hit that button, when you get to the 20% power saving mode, is certain features of your phone turn off. They shut down. They're not, they're not being used anymore. It's not grabbing emails the way it was the rest of the day. All these features start to minimize. And this is where Elijah is in life right now. He is in this low power mode. He is in this emotionally exhausted the way you can tell you get to this mode is when you're tired with a tired that sleep does not fix. You ever experience that? Where you feel tired and you think, oh, if I can just sleep, but then you wake up and you're just as tired when you wake up? That is like the most frustrating feeling in the world when you wake up tired after you slept the entire night. It's because... The exhaustion you experience is not a physical exhaustion. It's an emotional exhaustion that's coming from you hitting this low power mode and your body is shutting down things and is trying to conserve because you have stopped flowing in and what's happening is that you're steadily losing a lot more than you're bringing in. And what happens... Is that typically we get to those places, we get to this low power mode, and we find ourselves saying things that we normally don't say. Right? May call it being stressed, may label it a lot of different things, but you kind of lash out, you blow up, you do things, you say things that you normally wouldn't do. You uh, find yourself uh, feeling, having crazy thoughts running through your head. Escape starts to look really good. You start envisioning imagining a new marriage, start envisioning and imagining new jobs. Let's just be real. I won't tell your kids, but you start to imagine (laughs) new kids or like an upgraded version of your kid, right? But you start to have these escapist thoughts. Why? Because when you get to this place, while you can't physically point to it on your body, your brain still registers it as pain. And we don't like pain. And then when we get to unhealthy places, we start to emotionally try to numb pain. We try to cover up the pain. We may, uh, we may look for those little adrenaline shots that make us feel a little bit better, whether that's shopping, right, whether that's doing some other things that give us a little bit of a jolt, make us feel better. It may be you drink your feelings because you're trying to numb. You, you can't. You can't cover up a hole, necessarily. You you can try some of them, you may be able to fill them in. But at least when you start to try those numb and escape methods, what happens is you at least don't feel it pouring out for a little bit of time. When I eat my fillings, it tastes like moose tracks. I don't know what your fillings taste like, (laughs) but I know what mine does. But we do that. Whether it's drinking it, whether it's eating it, whether it's sleeping it, or whatever, we introduce these things and excess into our life to to cover up the exhaustion that's permeating our life. And those things are a lot like colanders, man. You can pour it in, but in the end, there's not much there. And what makes it worse is because your emotional energy is decreasing, you find yourself uh, not enjoying the things that you used to enjoy. You can be accused of being physically present, but emotionally, mentally, you're distant. In those moments where you're sitting with someone and they're with you but you know they're not with you. They're somewhere else because they're they're stuck in this like just this loop and they're they're spent. And the danger is if we stay in this place too long and we're not doing something with it, we double down, we obsess, we start to say we start to say these things. Oh, when this season is over, then I'll be better. I'm just going to push through. I'm just going to press through. I'm not going to give up. I'm just going to kind of keep moving. And then that hole, when, when that hole is filled, then I'll feel better. We start to tell ourselves those things. But life has a funny way when you finish with one season of crazy, it hands you another one. Just looks different with a different name. But we get into these traps and we double down and what we ignore is this whole area up here. When we're in this mode, we almost forget completely about this part because we're in survival. The things that have been helpful for us, we forget about them. This is why God steps into this moment with Elijah and he says, Elijah, eat something. Drink something. Sleep. Uh, a mentor of mine, a pastor, um, when he, he takes a spiritual retreat um, to, to kind of plan for the year, and the first two days um, of his retreat is sleeping. And he was like, I'm telling you, it's the craziest thing ever, but after those few days of sleeping, I start to, be, I start to feel like my old self again. That some of you, you're not crazy, you're just tired, and just, you just haven't slept in a normal way for an extended period of time. You're not going crazy. Your mind's not falling apart. It's just exhaustion. When you get into these emotionally depleted states, you can't trust your mind. You can't trust what flows through your mind. It feels permanent. It feels like it's never going to end. You hear that. This is never going to stop. And you can be a teenager in middle school going through this. You can be a high schooler dealing with a struggle right now and you feel like it's never going to be over. Because when you get to these depleted places, it feels like forever. And God steps in and says, hey, Elijah, let's turn on the valves up here. Let's let's get some more stuff in you because you're you're getting dangerously low. I, I even saw this this past week. I'm reading a book on Abraham Lincoln. Did you know during the Civil War that Abraham Lincoln went to the theater, the place ultimately where he ends up getting assassinated, side note, but he ends up going to the theater over a hundred times during the course of the Civil War. And the reason why is that his aides would write about it, that he would it was during his time at the theater that he would forget he was the president leading the nation through one of its darkest moments. When he'd wake up in the middle of the night trying to sleep, because can you imagine he literally has the weight of the world, he would walk into his secretary's room and he would wake him up and he would just read Shakespeare to him. Because he said when he would read Shakespeare, when he would listen to the theater, it would revive him, it would distract him, it would energize him. This is Abraham Lincoln, in one of the darkest moments of our nation's history, would take time out of his busy schedule. Let's just be real. If, If the President of the United States, independent of who it was, was going to showcase cinemas every week to watch a movie, people would be blasting him on television or her on television saying they clearly do not care about this nation. I mean, this is what he's doing during this time period. It's because Abraham Lincoln understands what does it look like to be resilient. And the reason that all of this is so critical is because when you get to this point down here, when you get to that place, if you've ever had an iPhone and you see 1%, you can tell when people hit 1% with an iPhone because they look like they're crazy. They're running around the house screaming, where's the cables, where's the cords? You know, They're like ripping out things and like plugging in like junkies because they know something. If you get an iPhone plugged in at 1%, it stays on and it's safe. But if that thing hits zero and the screen goes black, I mean, you can go construct a house You can go, I don't know, make an artwork, you can go raise a child and come back and the thing will be back on. Because that smart chip is not going to let that iPhone battery kick right back on. It's been depleted. And in a lot of ways, our soul is a lot like that. You pass this point and you get down to this place where you're at the bottom and you don't bounce back quick. What happens right after this passage is Elijah will be, God tells him to go somewhere and he will spend 40 days and 40 nights completely in isolation, being refueled. Because when you hit this moment here, you don't bounce back fast. And some of us, if I can just be lovingly candid to you, some of you have been living in this zone for so long that you think it's normal. And the challenge with you live life in this place is it's a lot like when you fly and the attendant says, ladies and gentlemen, in case of cabin pressure drop, oxygen mask will drop from the top of the ceiling. When the oxygen mask wrap, if you're traveling with a young child, grab the oxygen mask, place it on your face first, pull the cinch to make sure it's tight, and then place the oxygen mask on the child who's traveling with you, right? That's exactly what they say. And it's this reason that this is so critical. Because if you want to see, if you want to influence, if you want to raise emotionally resilient people around you, if you want to foster that in those around you, if you don't have it yourself, they will suffocate too. And that this on you first makes a world of difference on those around you second. That what studies have found over and over and over again, that the number one, the critical, core, most important factor in raising resilient kids or building a resilient team is having a resilient leader and emotionally healthy, stable parents. That parents, emotionally stable and healthy, are the kind of critical factor in fostering it in the lives of kids around them or the teams that they're surrounded by. And you just think about it, it makes sense. When you're emotionally depleted, it's really hard to listen to your kids talk, isn't it? It's really hard to hear your spouse vent about their frustrations at work that day. It's really hard to listen to your team member come and talk about a compliance problem they ran up against. It's just hard. Or even worse, you sit in places but you're not there, you physically are, but you don't hear what they're going through, you don't see those nuances. These moments, they happen all around us. But when we live in this place, we can miss it. And it's terrifying. I I really, sincerely, I have a fear of that with my daughter. Because I recognize there are moments, if I don't hear the details of what she's saying, I could miss something that's shaping her soul that day. Something that was said to her or done to her. I could not hear it because I'm living in this depleted place. And that you may feel guilty for what I'm about to ask you to do, but I'm telling you, this is the oxygen mask going on you first. Is you need to know what refuels you. And it needs to be in your calendar. You may think you're too busy, but if the President of the United States during the height of the Civil War could go to a theater, I'm pretty sure you can go to Zumba or you can read a book. Right? Let's just be real. If at the height of those moments, He could do it. I don't, I don't think God would, but I don't want an angel stepping in to redirect my schedule because I'm living at such a dangerously low place. And for us as a people to start living and start where we're focused in on this, and yeah, maybe we can fix this, but the reality is most of us, we can't. So we start to live with an intention of bringing these things into our lives, of making sure they're on our schedules regularly, that we're being diligent and disciplined with it, that we have those things pouring in. And if you have the app or if you have the paper version of our app, I would encourage you, you write down this question, what refuels me? And do not go to bed tonight until you've answered it. What drains me? Don't let other people see it because it may be a name. <laughs> but you need to know that too. Cuz when you're when you live in this place, guess what you do instinctively? You avoid those people who drain you. If you you're living in the 20% and you get a text message from him or her and they're a draining person, what do you do? You ignore it. And if you're living in this place and it's a person who recharges you, you respond. You want to go to dinner? And so pay attention to that. Those are indicators. And remember, some of these are good things, some of these are bad. I will be a zombie tonight. I'm speaking three different times today. I will be spent. If I remember my full name by the end of this day, it will be a miracle. But tonight, I will read a book about leadership and turbulent times that I've been working through. I'll read that for about an hour tonight, and I will love it. And it'll be what resets me going into Monday. So you don't have to apologize, you just need to be aggressive about making sure those things are in your life. And the last thing. So he got up, and he ate and he drank, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights till he reached Oreb, uh, the mountain of God. This is also Mount Sinai. There he went into a cave and he spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. And he says, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" He replied. "I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty." The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then, this final moment of this storyline unfolding, we see Elijah. And he travels for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. If you've seen the movie Ten Commandments, that's Mount Sinai. If you've read Exodus, right, and the early chapters of Exodus, that's Mount Sinai. That's Mount Orb. That's the place where God meets the people and the Ten Commandments are given. So God brings Elijah back to the place where it all started. And he asks him a very interesting question. He says, where are you? What are you doing here, Elijah. This is not God confused. This is not a question about geography. This is a question about relationship. This is a question about spatial. This is not a spatial thing. This is a relational thing. This is a, hey, what have you forgotten, Elijah? You saw me do these miracles. Have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten what I'm capable of? Did I not birth the very nation that you're concerned about? Did I not deliver them from Egypt and bring them to this mountain? What are you doing, Elijah? Why are you here? Have you forgotten my strength? Have you forgotten my power? And then, there's this very nuanced piece that's so fascinating. It says that he he went into a cave. In actual Hebrew, it's not a cave. It's the cave the, the writer is making a point to call, call out this very specific spot that Elijah finds himself in. And it's because in the later chapters of Exodus, Moses has an experience with God where God reveals who he is, where he walks in front of him and says, the Lord is gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. He, he declares the fullness of what the word Yahweh means to Moses. And he says to Elijah in this very spot... He's like, do you not remember who I said I was? That I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, I'm slow to anger. I see what's happening in the world around you, Elijah. I see the struggles that you're going through, but I am still able. I have rescued people out of slavery. I have risen back people who've been taken from life back to life. I have done incredible things through your hands and through you specifically, Elijah. Have you forgotten who I am? Even if the whole world raised up against you, Elijah, you're still just as safe today as if you were in the presence of friends and family. Elijah, I am stronger. Elijah, I am greater. Elijah, I am bigger and more majestic. I am the I am. I have been forever. I will be and I will continue Be, I have never been called in the question. I have never been doubted. I have never had a moment or a bad day or I got distracted or played a game and forgot what was going on. Elijah, I am God. That's why I brought you back here because you've forgotten who I am. You've allowed the emotions that you feel to dictate the motions of your life, you've allowed your feelings to distort the facts. Which is why in a few verses later, he says to him, "Um, Elijah, there are 7,000 people in Israel who still follow me. You're not the only one. You may feel like you're the only one. But it's not true. Because when we live in this place, we say things like always. We say things like never. We say things like everyone. We get into these worlds where our emotions start to distort the reality around us. And God steps into this moment with Elijah and he says, your emotions are not your friend. They're your enemy right now. And for some of us in this season, in this stage, if I could just encourage you, your emotions are not your friends. They're your enemies. You've been living in this place for so long you think it's normal, but what is going through your head, what you feel like that keeps you from wanting to get out of the bed, it's not true. I'm not saying you don't feel it. I'm just saying that as Christians, one of the things that God did for Elijah and that He does for us is that He shows us, that He reminds us that there is more than just what we feel on the inside. That He is greater than our strongest emotions and our greatest struggles. And that He meets us in those places. And that He lifts us from those places. And that He can sustain us. And He may not send an angel, but I can promise you, That if in a moment when I pray, that if you pray with me, that He can meet you in your hard place too and give you the strength and give you the refueling that comes from the top. Because there is a spiritual source in Him that nothing in this world can deplete and remove from you. And for those who are not sure about faith or kind of uncertain Um, you'll see pop up in the app after service a little icon that just says Exploring Faith. And it's a video I've recorded for you that just talks about how how do you become a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? So that you can explore at your own time frame and your own schedule a little bit more about the Christian faith and what it means. And how you, if you are interested, how you can connect to that spiritual source too. Let's pray.